Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of RD and the Inbetweens. In this episode, I am beyond thrilled to be talking to Jane Hardy, who is the founder of the Blurt Foundation, um, author of a number of self-care and wellbeing related books that have been really inspirational to me as an individual, but also have had a huge influence on the support that I give to our researchers about well-being and productivity and work habits and cultures. So I was delighted when Jane agreed to talk to me about all things well-being, self-care and academia. Um, my name is Jane Hardy and I'm the um, founder and CEO of the Blurt Foundation, which is a social enterprise um, dedicated to supporting those affected by depression. I'm also the author of four books um, now, um, Self-Care Project, 365 Days of Self-Care, A Journal, um, Making Space and the and my next one, which is coming out in November, which is Kind Words for Unkind Days. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So the, there's a number of different reasons why I wanted to talk to you, Jane. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, on a personal level, I have found the work of the Blurt Foundation and your books to be a really important part of my own kind of mental health journey. I think is is the nicest way to put it. Um, and also, so in the role that I have at the university, so I look after all of our PhD students. Um, and mostly what I do is about training and development, but there's been a huge focus in the past few years about wellbeing because a lot of the research done shows that actually there a higher proportion of PhD students suffer from mental health problems than in the general population. And we know certain things about academic culture which is incredibly toxic and incredibly stressful and for me the the self-care project of making space the the kind of things that you talk about and the kind of uh issues and struggles you talk about within them just really really hit home for the kinds of things that i know my students struggle with but i also know that i struggled with when i was an academic so things like having really wonky boundaries um <laughs> and the kind of not being able to kind of stop it and, and make that space and, and make the division between what I do for others and what I do for myself um so yeah I just I just wanted to have a chat to you and kind of learn a bit more about the kind of self-care and the self-care journey but also your kind of things that you've reflected on and learned about those kind of boundary setting because it is something that is that feels particularly important at the moment where we will continue to be working from home so working and living in the same space which obviously as you were saying before we started is something you've been doing for a long time yes since um 2011 pretty much pretty much but mm -hmm. solidly from 2014 onwards um when we had peggy um so yeah it's something i've been doing um all, since then and still tweaking it trying to you know get it work sometimes i think i found something that works and then <laughs> some 
it suddenly doesn't so I'm just always constantly trying to tweak and flex to try and make it work for myself and I think that's kind of just what life is like isn't it we do something for a little while then we realize it's not working but we need to then take a pause and reflect on why it might not be working for us and what might um and we don't tend to do that we don't tend to pause we just tend to keep on muddling on thinking that perhaps it's like us at fault rather than mm. our environment and um when you were saying about um the toxic environments um in sometimes in academia i think the key thing is that we tend to be what we can see so it takes people to change and to have the courage to stand up and do things differently that other people can see them doing for things to change yeah and and for me that's such it's such a brave thing to do and it requires so much courage you know I've I've had students say to me before you know they they're researching in a lab and everyone's there at eight o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night and they're there at weekends how how do you be the one person that decides they're not going to do that and the amount yeah the amount of bravery that that takes oh so much so much and it and I read some um an article the other day um it was a scientific study um that it takes three years to change a culture within a workplace environment within an environment it takes three years um which is an awfully long time when you consider how much can change you know if you think about even in, in the landscape of things at the moment for us, it's only taken six months for things to just completely change. But it, it, three years, that's, and that's just, for me, that's just mind boggling. It takes so long, but I think it's just, things just become so ingrained, so normal, so in the fabric of what we do, um, that it's never just gonna be one person. It's kind of a collective, I think. Usually it's a collective endeavor as if to say, no this isn't really that healthy for us we appreciate it's not how can we change this how can we work together to foster a more supportive and nurturing culture for longevity more than anything for long term short in the short term we can all work in those bursts of you know 12 hour days seven days a week and in the short term we can do that but in the long term it's not sustainable and at some point our bodies and minds force us to stop Absolutely. And I think that thing you said about kind of being able to sort of have role models and people you you, you see kind of embodying those sorts of behaviours and setting those boundaries is really important. And I know from, you know, my own experience, so I was as an academic for six years and I did all of the things that you're talking about there. I kind of worked in bursts and I completely burnt out a couple of times before I went, there's something wrong here and I don't think it's me. Um, and the problem that I had is I had no nobody was a talking about mental health in in the kind of arena that I was in so I had a a breakdown and I went off work for three months and I came back and no one mentioned it as if strange isn't it like um I always used to call it dropping the d-bomb until someone's yeah means something completely different (laughs) (laughs) it's it's so strange so somebody can be off ill with a number of different illnesses, you know, um, cancer, they've had an operation on their leg, they've had all these other things and they get cards and they get flowers from their colleagues and their peers. Um, and then you're off, um, you're unwell with um, a mental ill, mental Ill health and you just hear nothing. Mm-hmm. And it, it the, just that, that disparity between how we treat both illnesses is, um, it's really hard. And it makes it really hard to return to that workplace. I think when once it's gone kind of, 
it feels like it's gone unnoticed. Of course it hasn't because you're not there, but it, 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 it makes you feel when you have depression or mental health, you already feel as though you're insignificant and a burden. Like just, it just comes with the illness. It's just yeah. you all commonly feel that way. And then to not have your absence kind of acknowledged with those kind gestures as you would if it, you know something else was, was wrong, um, kind of just plays into those thoughts, doesn't it, of your insignificance and that you don't really matter and that you're not valued. And that, and I think that sense of shame as well, you know, that, that 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 this is something kind of that that shouldn't be talked about, and 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 that that you should be, you know, that this idea that you should be ashamed that you were um, struggling with your mental health, and and I just up to a point you've probably hidden it from people so hard and masked it, and um, you you do you work so hard to not to for none of the um, symptoms to kind of be you know externalised. Mm. Um, and then to then have kind of, you know, your peers and management just kind of hushing it as well. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. It complete, I've experienced that before when I was um, when I was first signed off work with depression in 2004 or five. Um, nobody mentions it. And then you just it just plays into the shame. It just magnifies it because then suddenly you've got that time on your hands to kind of ponder over it a little bit more. And yeah, and I like it just the whole thing just spirals and it makes the situation for the individual but also the culture a lot worse it's very damaging for those who are still remaining in work but who might be struggling yeah. um to see that somebody has is off and that no one is the thing that no one's talking about it's quite damaging then it's damaging for the person that's been you know that's now off work but it's just very damaging for the people that remain because if we're just showing that this is something we're not going to talk about it's all hush hush kind of buried under the carpet then it, it does it kind of it diminishes the courage of those that are there to speak up if they need help and you know as we all know the sooner that we speak up about any problems that we are facing the sooner we usually can get help and the less um of an effect it can have on us if we can make adjustments very early on before things become you know um quite moderate and um, then that's a really good thing absolutely and i that there's a sense of when when I am open um, as I increasingly am about my mental health and when I need to take time off and when I'm struggling um, it opens up a dialogue and it opens up a space that has for me been nothing but positive I've had a couple of instances where like my where my mum has gone are you sure you want to be tweeting about this do you think that you know at some point this might affect your ability to get another job or anything like that and I sort of get on my high horse and say no because that's discrimination um but apart from that there just seems to be this kind of wonderfully for me positive response that is supportive um and kind of like you take the time that you need that's really important you look after you but also a sense of oh thank you actually I'm really struggling at the moment as well and all of a sudden it opens up a whole heap of conversations that you wouldn't have had Oh, absolutely. I always talk about it as the door of vulnerability. It feels like it slams our faces a lot of the time. And if, if someone can open it and be, and, you know, it takes a lot of courage. I'm not, I'm, I mean, it does take a hell of a lot of courage. Um, but if someone can open it, other people will walk through it. And that's what you've experienced, that you're being, you've been brave to open it. And then other people have followed you through and feel as though then 
you know, you're somebody they can talk to about it. And I think that's what, I mean, that's what definitely happened to me. I felt so alone and I'd really isolated myself. And then I started being open about it in quite a big way, actually, once <laughs> I started being open about it. And so many people who had been my friends before that period of isolation were like, oh, I've been struggling too. We'd all just been struggling in silence. We could have supported each other. And it, it was a real eye-opener to me that, you know, we know from the statistics that there are, there are a lot of people in, our, in the same position as us when we're unwell. Um, so it makes sense that we might try and then foster some kind of, um, you know, support among one another. Um, it, it, yeah, I think that it, I've def my experience has definitely been that once somebody speaks up, and also not just that, even if somebody else doesn't, even when you've spoken up and then other people have spoken to you, you still will have affected other people in a positive way by just speaking up. Um, they would have felt less alone, maybe more inspired to reach out to somebody even if that wasn't you. Um, so yeah, it has a really positive knock-on effect, I would say. And yes, there are there is discrimination that does happen, um, and which is is another is another quite massive problem depending on what industry you're in. I think yeah. some it's more you know prevalent than others, um, but on the whole, I think that we just need those people to just I think it's going that way people are becoming yeah. talking about it a lot more you know I uh, first felt unwell in 2004 and nobody was really talking about it then now now we are um, so it's come a long long way but again it's got such a long way to go yeah and I think for for me in academia that's because I've so I've been in academia for about 11 years now and the it has since I was unwell back so it was 2012 when I was very poorly there has felt like a massive shift since then long way to go <laughs> but quite a big shift in having more open conversations about these things and one of the things that that's brought for me is connection to and conversation with other people that suffer from depression and anxiety and which has kind of formed a and which has formed a support system in and of itself to have people to talk to who completely understand you know I've found over years it's really difficult to explain to a family member what depression feels like and the legitimacy of it if they haven't experienced it it can be a really difficult thing to explain to someone whereas talking to someone who completely gets it and experiences it themselves I find it to be so um, reassuring and empowering in a lot of ways yeah, it's that knowing nod, isn't it? It's that knowing nod that someone just gets it and it's validating as much as it's affirming. Um, you know, yeah, there's just, there's def it's, de it's definitely really difficult to explain to someone who's never experienced it. But I always think it's really strange though as well because we, we can't really see love yeah, but we don't doubt it exists, and we can't really see electricity. We just can see the call, you know, <laughs> the uh, the result of electricity. But we so we don't and we don't doubt that exists. Um, and I think if we look really hard at those that we that are unwell, we can see the effects of. We might not be able to sort of see depression kind of on them as though if you have a broken leg, you can see that there's a broken leg. But you can actually, if you look closely and listen see the effects that the illness is having on someone and so in the same way that you know electricity can light up a room someone with depression might you know have their posture might have changed their eyes might not be so bright they might not be taking such good care of themselves physically their their houses might you know i have a floor joke whenever i'm not doing well because, <laughs> you know, it's just a physical manifestation of what's going on inside and um, so i think that whilst we can't necessarily see 
mental ill health necessarily um i mean you can but um mm. i think that you can see the effects of it on somebody if you're willing to look um yeah and that's the things and also interesting you said about um being at work how it's really helped you to have those supportive the support network yeah what we know that stress and stress um is stress and burnout is kind of a real problem at the moment um even more so before kind of lockdown covid yeah. it was it was a growing problem um but we we know that from research that one of the things that people say is that they just don't feel like they have any kind of support at work and that is what's adding to the stress that they feel and the burnout and so it's just so short-sighted to be not having these conversations at work and yeah. to not be trying our best to change the cultures because whatever organization you're in you're going to um be worse off long term that you're kind of not addressing this you're just going to be worse off long term whether that's you're having a high increase in turnover you know you have a really unhappy work place it's less productive and you're having absenteeism and present pre i can never say this one presenteeism and <laughs> um, it's just so short-sighted i can never say that one and um, it's just so short-sighted really to not be think to not be looking at the card cold hard data mm. and realizing that it's just good common sense to be thinking about how we can change our cultures absolutely and i've i mean i've certainly found during during covid and during the lockdown you know really really early on in the first sort of couple of weeks of it i was did what everybody did i got highly motivated i went i'm at home i've got all this time to do all this stuff and i can concentrate on work and and then i burnt out and i i had a complete mental kind of um i don't even know what to call it like almost like a plateau where i just went nope can't do yeah. this it's too much and i for the first i've always you know for the past few years um i've always had a really brilliant bosses and managers who have been really good at having conversations about mental health and really understanding um but i for the first time emailed a boss and said i need mental health day in fact i think i might need two because this has just all of a sudden completely floored me and it's and there will and i was a bit worried about what the response would be even though i know my boss well and i know that he's incredibly supportive of that kind of thing um and he was and he was absolutely brilliant i mean but we need more i mean we need better from in my experience we need better managers who are willing to have those conversations who are trained to have those conversations but also you know those those structures where people can take mental health days and recognize that it, you know you need that sick leave in the same way that you'd need sick leave if you fell over a cat which is what i did earlier in this year and ended up in a boot but you know it's 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 you need it in this in the same way to recover and to recuperate absolutely and actually um i would always just when, i mean back in 2004 when i was just becoming coming really unwell i would just say i had tonsillitis like literally every week yeah. <laughs> and then i just because i just couldn't bring myself to say that it was my mental health yeah. and i think that's that's the risk we're having at the moment is that people are kind of you know having sick leave but they're not being honest about what the sick leave necessarily is for which is again it just plays into the stigma and shame and i think you're absolutely right we need to just normalize that you're having a, a 
you're unwell, you're having the time off that you need to recover. But I also truly believe that also that flexible working is such a a tool that yeah. could be it should be more wide ranging. So, for example, I always find towards the end of the week I'm feeling really. I always knackered by the end of the week, like I, you know, being, I just am. I just go. I tend to be all or nothing. So when I'm at work, I give it everything. So by the end of the week, I just I'm frazzled. So because we've got flexible working, it's okay for me to top heavy my week and then to have Fridays off because I've still done the work. I've still done the things I've wanted yeah. to do, but I can then have Fridays work. And it doesn't work towards every industry. But even um, Mother Pucker, so Anna Whitehouse, has managed to work with um, one, an NHS trust and they've managed to integrate flexible working there, which is incredible. Wow. I mean, the logistics of it must be incredible. Um, but just... <laughs> I think that it gives people autonomy over when they work best, when how they're feeling on a certain day. It means they don't have to have that, um, you know, that conflict always about be between being a parent and working, mm. you know, because they can be flexible. Um, and I think that's something that has happened a lot, actually, has, has forced a lot of um, employers' hands whilst we've been working remotely. I think probably people are working more flexibly than managers and employers really <laughs> Um, but I can imagine that productivity hasn't gone down or anything because of the flexibility. We know that when people are more flexible, they're more productive because then the conflict's been removed half the time that affects how productive we might be. So I think that having, you know, we've got a team of, that works remotely and we all work flexibly and I work really, I work better in the morning. That's when I'm ready to get, I'm raring to go. And I kind of like, as the day goes on, I get less. <laughs> But we have other people on the team who just, they, that's, they're the opposite. So they don't start to kind of like lunchtime and then they work onwards from them. And it just works really well for all of us because no one's being forced to work where it just doesn't suit them. So you're taking away that conflict, just eliminating it. And that's so key for me because when, I mean, with a lot of our researchers and with academics, the one of the things that I struggled with as an academic is that it's kind of, it's not even flexible working. It's just a kind of open nothingness. <laughs> it's, <solid working. laughs> it's just no structure. Um, you, have, you have your teaching, but the rest of it is so open. And there's this kind of concept of academic guilt, which is that because, there's, because there aren't clearly demarcated boundaries, you struggle to put them in place and you always feel guilty, like you could be doing more because there's always more work you could do. And it, and, and that's exactly what happened to me. And I ended up working 12 hours a day, seven day, days a week on a four day a week contract, which is just complete, like completely balmy. But is it a competitive environment too? I can imagine. Yes, yeah. Hugely. And the things that you're talking about, about you were talking about earlier about kind of having role models and that sort of thing that for me was really key is I didn't, everybody was doing that. And so there wasn't a kind of, there wasn't a sense of oh that it can be done differently because everyone else was doing it and so you know I I went into my first job and everyone was doing that so I did that and and it and it kind of perpetuates itself until it for me had quite a dramatic impact <laughs> um and one of the one of the things that in the role that I'm in now that's really great is we have like great flexible working policies prior to covid and i do um compressed working so i work what they call 10 days and nine so i work a slightly longer day by 45 minutes um and i have a day off every friday and one of the reasons for that is because of my both my physical and, and mental health problems 
I and and my inability to set my own boundaries, it means that I I find it easier to switch off and to not engage and to not work on a day at home than I do to finish on time at work if I'm in the office and there are things to do. Um, and that's been, it doesn't work for everybody, but that's been a structure that has helped me so much and has made me better at my job because. Space to, to look for what works for you. And I yeah. think that's so key here with kind of boundaries is mm-hmm. that every, so when you, if you we go back to you saying that it's just what everyone did, so you did it, guarantee, like I can guarantee that if the conversation had been had, most of those people were doing that, that thing, working that way felt burnt out or might have resentment towards it or felt unwell that and they were doing it because everyone else was doing it. And that's yeah. the thing we need to kind of try and unpick, I think society in society. And, um, but again, with the boundaries that works well for you. And I think it's that that's the thing about boundaries. There are boundaries, our, our limits and our boundaries are different for different people. Yeah. And when you find the thing that works for you, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> the freedom that comes yeah. from just, being that thing that works for you and you would have had to trial and error it for sure oh, yeah. yeah try things to see what did and didn't work for you um, and I think we're scared to do that as people a little bit that trial and error that we might feel, feel like we appear flaky or that we might appear like we just really don't know what we're doing or that we might you know this is like awful phrase of like being snowflakes now isn't there that you might you might be taking back um autonomy over yourself that you might be a snowflake or for just talking about these things that are just so really should be normal to talk about um it's it's great that you found works for you and it's just you know hopefully there are people around you (laughs) who are watching and listening and just feel you know it gives them that little bit of a motivation to try and if something's not working for them to to try something new absolutely and i think that in making space the thing about where the chapter you talk about work and you talk about the non-negotiables that that was a really powerful thing for me because I think that was my that was my wake-up call as it were about boundaries and about being an academic and and it were not working for me because I was working these kind of insane days and my um my grandma wasn't well but not seriously unwell we didn't think and I kept thinking, I worked away and I was thinking, oh, I'll, I'll go home this weekend and I'll, and I'll go and see her. But I then went, oh, but I've got all this marking to do and, and all of this. And she got very, very poorly and, and um, very sadly passed away. I did get to see her before that, but I had this sort of click in my brain where I went, that's a complete non-negotiable for me. Yeah, and I'm it, so sorry that it took such a frustrating yeah. thing to happen for you to to realize that like that's I'm so sorry yeah. and Thank I you. think it sometimes it has to be it has to be something that that shakes you enough you. yeah absolutely but absolutely. you go and I'd been unhappy for so long and I knew I was I knew I was unhappy and I knew that I was burning it I was burnt out again and I knew that that the role and what the job that wasn't working for me but it was it's very difficult to admit that without a sense of failure yeah I can I definitely resonate with that um absolutely and I think it's 
just so sad that we see it as a personal failure rather mm-hmm. than a systemic failure it's like we put yeah. it on ourselves and I think that's that you know we tend to just put it on ourselves it's us that can't keep up it's us lacking it's us not being enough doing enough um having enough um rather than it just us being failed by a system that's not a healthy one yeah um and like the non-negotiable things for me, it was just really obvious to me that when you employ somebody, you tend to, or hire someone, you just have a contract. And that contract is so clear. And if it's not, you have the opportunity to kind of go back and forth and clarify points and, you know, to, to get it changed before you start a job. And then slowly but surely, these other things creep in, don't they? Mm. And, and we don't then have the conversation that manages the expectations of both parties and I think it's really important that we just don't keep saying yes 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 and then suddenly we're buried beneath the the sheer amount of weight of the things that are expected of us we haven't you know I think every time there's a new expectation there's an opportunity there to pause and have a conversation with whoever the expectation is coming from even if it's ourselves and to to make sure that I don't know that there's clear communication Mm. surrounding but also a mindfulness within ourselves of what that means we might need to compromise so for you that was you you compromised um senior grant I know at times I've compromised going to I missed my daughter's play once and um she never let me forget it and um, I've never forgotten it and I'm I vowed never to again like for me I was like no I only get one shot of being her mum yes um, and I want to be there and I haven't missed any since and I won't but just I you know those and I'm glad I almost have that pain when I remember it because it it keeps me going to remember that I won't I won't do that again um but we all when we're all taking on something new we're giving up something else yeah and that has to fit that has to feel comfortable with us it can't just be a um automatic yes I'll take that on yes I'll take that on yes I'll take that on and I think it's it's that that thing of everything being a process and everything being open to change. You know, the compressed working really works for me at the moment. Um, it, you know, in a year's time, things may change. It may not. You know, m- you know, if my life situation changes or my health changes, you know, I, I may may need further change to that um, or revert back to how I was before. And I think it's that kind of sense of you find something that works, but don't accept that that's kind of a permanent state of affairs yes it's it's going to change and evolve as you change and evolve and also that your your non-negotiables and your values will yes will change yes and I think as humans we have this natural tendency to like things to be certain like our brains are wired that it wants to know what's going on um and so when you change anything even if it's for the for the best and it's you've thought about it and you know it's the best your brain doesn't like it because things change and it's trying to then recalibrate and that's why I think um COVID's been so um exhausting for us because everything's been so uncertain I mean it still is it's the uncertainty is what's exhausting us because our brain is trying to kind of like search our horizons and find the point that's certain and I think it's hard because you're going against your natural kind of biology when you are allowing yourself to be flexible um and that's so hard (laughs) because it just you know your your brain just wants to know where we're at but equally it needs to not be so exhausted (laughs) because we've kept on doing something and you just it's it's that thing of perpetuating 
within yourself that kind of negative behavior or you know something even though deep down you know that it's it's having that negative impact on you yes, you know that it's like, not doing you any good and in a lot of cases it's doing you a lot of harm yes that's the that's the key word it's it, it, you know it, it i think it's helpful to think of things as being harmful sometimes rather than it's not doing us any good because yeah. not doing us any good kind of sounds playful doesn't it like oh it's not doing me any good but i'm gonna anyway and um, <laughs> once you start i think in, yeah the self-care project I, I said have we ever considered that to not self-care could be partaking in self-neglect and i know that's something at home with a lot of people because we don't like to be thinking, thought of as neglectful even yeah. when it comes to ourselves um and so i think that's that's that you know it's important to realize the short-term and long-term consequences of our choices and decisions yeah and i think that that shift in language like you said it's really important it's really important for us to grasp the impact of not doing these things yeah and also i think we kind of like think like we put things off um until we're forced to sort of do something um and i mean there's no make your back like you so if you had a leg that was going green you wouldn't keep walking on it because you'd be scared that you might lose your leg yes um, but if you keep on keeping on when you're mentally feeling super unwell then you can lose your life yeah. and it is that it can be that devastating and we need to always bear that in mind that we deserve to be healthy and happy and mm -hmm. um, we deserve every, everybody has everybody deserves that we're on a level playing field everybody deserves that and we almost have to realize that we deserve it like we deserve it and lots of this work goes against the grain because you know gen generationally we're shifting things um you know, we might have learned things from our parents that don't really didn't serve them, but and don't really serve us. And we have to unlearn a lot of things and relearn, which is really hard work. We have to make space and hold space to just even question. We need to question more, mm. like the why. <clears throat> why yeah. do I feel like I have to keep going and I can't take a break? Why? Where does that come from? Who have I learned that from? Or where have I seen that? Or what is there going on inside of me psychologically that like keeps that going? Um, just question everything because we can change things and they don't it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen quickly. And sometimes you're taking on beasts of systemic stuff. Um, but if enough of us make tiny changes, that compounds. Yeah. And I, I think the the thing about questioning um, is really crucial to me because the sort of in the past few years of doing the role that I now do, which is more about supporting new academics. I mean, the sort of the reflection that I've had is there's all this research out there about mental health and well-being and work environments. And, you know, we know the quote unquote snowflakey environment of of the kind of Googles of the world are actually fantastic for productivity because they are flexible and because they are supportive and, um, and creative. And, you know, I work in an environment that prioritizes knowledge and research about above all, all else. And yet there's all that research out there about work environments and habits and cultures and well-being that we know about, but in the way that we behave in that environment, we completely ignore. And it feels so warped to me that we're in that kind of environment that values knowledge and research and we ignore the research that exists 
It's scary, but isn't it? It's really it's scary. scary. And it's like we think we're immune to, yeah. to like, but we're not unique. <laughs> like, in, yeah. we're not unique. Like, if 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 we know that some, like, if if we know that there's um a cause that has this effect, then we're not immune to that. We don't have some massive like brilliant power shield or like you know that's gonna mean mean that we do the same thing have and it's gonna have a different effect. Um, it's it's really really strange to me that we can have all this data. And it just doesn't seem to drop like it, it just doesn't seem to drop and i you know i think and, and especially when there's um data to show how dif how doing things differently can have such beneficial um outcomes yeah that that for me is what's so baffling um and you know i know and I think there are lots and lots of companies that are actually starting to realise that, that they that they that they that they care that they're starting to care more about the people that make up their company, um, yes, than their bottom lines now. Um, because I mean, you know, it's good it's good for business to care about your company, about the people who make up your company anyway. Um, but you know, we need to value people more, and we need to assist them. To, in making the right change, right choices for them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And create boundaries because we all benefit from boundaries. We yeah. all benefit. And that's, you know, that's the thing. And that's the thing that's coming out in so many forums or for at the moment is that, you know, these kind of fundamental changes about structures and systems and cultures, you know, whether that is about well-being or um, disability or race, or actually in the end, these systematic changes are going to benefit everybody. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it, I mean, I, I wrote about it in Making Space. If you kind of do a time frame of who created the structures in the first place and who they benefit, yeah. Um, that's always quite scary the power distribution of those um that you know lots and lots and lots of our um processes and procedures and rules and regulations were created by men mm -hmm. um as men had all the power and then now as more and more women are you know becoming more in power those rules and regulations and things don't necessarily suit you know those people and so you're going up against like history like years and years and years and years of things being done a certain way and that's heavy and overwhelming and um scary at times um to be doing differently yeah i've been listening to invisible women and as an audiobook and the you know the the stuff in there about about these kind of things about how you know work and social and all our systems are built for men but not yeah. only that we don't even hold data about women in these spaces and how these spaces and how these structures affect women. Like it didn't, it hasn't even kind of occurred to us to understand that there might be difference, you know, that, that women might experience um, work differently yes. if they have children, you know, because there are, because the fundamental assumption is you can work late because you've got a wife at home looking after your children and, yes. and I think even you know as somebody that considers themselves quite kind of very liberal and kind of quite and well educated and everything just the shock and the horror at realizing some of the structures that I engage with and 
not realizing how sexist they are and how actually the reason that I struggle with them is that they don't they were not built for me yeah I think that's the worst thing and then you feel like you're already on the back foot you feel like you're in a in a space that wasn't built for you so then there's that 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 you know imposter syndrome in women is something that's life and we just experience that feeling more and that's because of the systems that we're within that weren't created for with us taking into account it's 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 really hard then to and often then when we are trying to create boundaries we're creating new that new things Mm -hmm. we're creating we're trying to create new things after years of things being you know status quo and that that's that's um really really tough <laughs> it's it really 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 tough I know that when I started Blur and I was like I want to create an environment where um people we can really work with people who have um men, you know mental Ill health um, challenges or experience in a way that really really supports them and you know we've worked all we were and even like to, to say a year ago to say that we worked remotely flexibly in meetings there'd be employers that would be like gasp at that and now they're all having to do it and actually it was those employers that would come to us in kind of march and be like help mm. <laughs> we don't know how to do this we don't know how to support a team and they were like we don't know how to like keep an eye on the team or all the rest of it um people if you, when you do things differently that it's never well received until you can prove over time that it works and that's slog and it's thankless and it's you've got you're judged and you're criticized and it, it, it it's hard to be I think it's really hard to be the person that stands up and wants to do wants to change things because it, like you said it's not easy and you and you get that pushback and you get that um criticism and negativity and and you have to be incredibly resilient and push back and fight and and like you say you know prove which is not easy no it takes time it takes a lot of time you know when people um, talk about success and um there is no overnight success but we we always we we always think there are but i I remember was it eight or 12 years i can't remember but someone's like yeah overnight success stereotypically is i think eight years in the in the making or is it 12 oh wow by the way really really long time so when you see sort of like something that seems an overnight success it's taken i can't remember now but eight or 12 years to get to that point which mm. i mean you've got to be able to see the long term haven't you i think that's what's so wrong with lot at the moment with so many systems and structures and workplaces is that we're not looking long term of where we would like to be in yeah eight to twelve years we're just doing what we've always done in the hope that we'll get what we've always got but things are changing and and we need to keep up and i think something that a lot of people have said to me particularly around um well-being and also sort of women in leadership and women's role in the workplace is kind of well i understand what you're saying but the generation of you know in in my context researchers that are coming through the system now are much more open about well-being um, and their mental health are much more aware and cognizant of um, toxic work habits and those sorts of things and and so you know there's a kind of the sense of well we just need to wait until those people are in a position of power or have you know gone through the system and then things will will magically be different because 
a different generation of people has come through and it's not that I don't think there's some truth to that because I do but it you you can't just go oh then we'll just sit back and wait because you still we still need to get those people into a position of power you know in academia we need to make sure they don't leave which is such a huge issue they they've had they they've been they get they get conditioned to do whatever has always been done yeah exactly it has to kind of has to be like top down bottom up Mm. simultaneously um and i think we have so many i have so many researchers who go through go through their research with their phd and i sort of you know i'll say to them what what are you thinking about doing afterwards because the you know we we know that only about 30 percent of them will go into an academic role because there aren't that many um and we ha- you know we're recruiting more and more phd students each year and the ones that i'm always really excited about the idea of them becoming academics because i think that they have just the most fantastic perspective and that they're so creative and i i, I can see how they could foster change they turn around and go i don't know but there's no way in hell i'm becoming an academic because oh. they see the system and 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 they're self-reflective enough to go that's not a positive system i'm not engaging with it and i i all every time i come away with this immense sense of sadness thinking yeah we're pushing away the people that could make the change yeah yeah that's because they're repelled by the yeah. idea of, of having to work in a way that, that's that's really sad and yeah. all of that um talent yeah that's lost there there um that's i think that's what i mean by the long-term thinking yeah. like you're repelling <laughs> people yeah. who would be excellent at something that that, that makes no sense there's so much that makes no sense unfortunately and i think what's so sad is like um even if those people were to um go into academia like leaders are very influential Mm. (laughs) even if it's in a subtle way you don't even realize you're being influenced um and there does need to the shake-up just does have to be leadership down bottom up it needs to be everyone needs to be including the conversation and everybody needs to hold, be held to account in any changes that are agreed. And I think that's where the communication goes wonky. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's really, really sad that the way things are, that people have compromised so much of themselves and their outside lives. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit more about self-care um, because this has become... Um, since reading the self-care project a kind of a a project of mine in in my own life but also in in my job to think about what self-care means in my life and how I can embed it more in my daily routines um so I started that last for the whole of 2019 I did a a self-care weekends thing on Twitter where every Saturday and Sunday I tweeted something that I was doing um that was a self-care activity to try and kind of promote the idea of taking a break but also to document for myself and kind of almost create a culpability for myself that I had to do something <laughs> on those yeah, no, I yeah. <laughs> it's no, like well, you you're doing it publicly you're telling people you're doing it so you have to do something that you can <laughs> that you can talk about so it it was kind of a, a way to try and embed 
self-care in into my life but I I wondered like where did the self-care project come from for you so when I had depression I kind of gave up on myself um for a good few years you know I lost a tooth because I wasn't brushing my teeth and my hair was I remember it being matted and I chopped it all off once I hacked it all off and just wasn't taking any care of myself um and hoping to feel better <laughs> like yeah. hoping that something would happen on the and just magically make it feel better and um, I as I was approaching 30 I remember like really having um serious thoughts of um suicide because I couldn't face losing my 30s in the same way as I'd lost mm. really most of my 20s um as it happened I had lots of conversations with who's my now husband um about all of that and he was like I just think you've given up on yourself like don't like you've just given completely up on yourself and he was right I had and I kind of knew at that point that I need to either like give up giving up I need to give up giving up or you know all my 30s would be the same or then there's the horror, the other side of that coin that I just don't ever really want to think about um so I decided to give up giving up but I didn't but I was exhausted and you know had no hope was really low was as low as I possibly have ever been um and remember we set about a plan and the plan was that I was going to have a portion of fruit and veg with my breakfast because <laughs> I was just living on like toast because I couldn't be bothered. I was like toast, toast. It was all I could be bothered to kind of make. Um, so we started doing that and then we, then it became every meal was going to have that. And then I would just habit stack eventually. I mean, it was, I mean, it was no, not easy and it was over a long period of time, like years. Um, and then it was when I started working with blood, I realized that it was self-care. Like I had begun caring for myself. Um, and it just became such a powerful concept that when I realized that's what I had done and how simple it had been at times, like just having an apple with my breakfast or a banana with my lunch or some cucumber with a sandwich or, or something. Um, and it was just, I don't know, I, it felt easier to focus on the notion of self-care than to focus on what depression had taken from me. Yeah. Um, it was just a reframe, really. Um, and so I started writing about it in 2014, 15, and lots of other people then loved the idea, like were loving the concept of it. So I just wanted to write a self-care project, really, to share all of the things that I'd learned and how self-care had helped me go from kind of like the bottom of the pit <laughs> to... Uh, more functioning place where you know I then felt able to have a child and all the rest of it um but I wanted to kind of unpick as well how the lack of self-care contributed to contributed to my down my downward spiral so when I look back even further than being ill with depression I can see how the choices I was making in people pleasing just going along with my friends yeah. when they were out all the time and I didn't um, and just kind of I went to university and I didn't really want to go but all my friends were and I thought oh well everyone else is and you know and I hated it then and dropped out and then I had shame and god there was just a hundred things if not more yeah. that contributed to me just making choices that weren't right for me I just got swept swept along in everybody else's choices and decisions and um, and ended up making all of the wrong ones for me and that was a lack of self-care I now know um, so I just wanted to empower people to consider what is right for them. Yeah. And get to know themselves enough to know what's right for them. Um, 
and that's really what the self-care project was all about and which is why and why there's like exercises in there yes. so rather than you you have to participate we don't have to participate but the book was written so that you would participate and try and understand yourself a little bit better so that you would know what self-care meant for you rather than seeing it on social media and assuming that what's working for everyone else or what people are using as a marketing tool um mm. to try and sell things that you would try and understand get to know yourself um and personalize your self-care because it's self it's self-care it's not it's not kelly care jane yeah. care it's <laughs> self-care um and so for you it's kelly care but look you know i i might see what you're doing and then and then just assume that is self-care and it might not work for me and then think that it's something wrong with me whereas it's not it's what works for you might not work for me obviously there's, there's the basics that work for everybody like you know getting a good night's sleep and mm -hmm. you know nutrition and and things like that um but lots of it are, are the things that light me up might not be what light you up um you know my priorities and values might be different to your priorities and values and so i always think of in the simplest terms self-care being something that future me will thank now me for yes um so that really helps me to think well yeah i might do this now but is tomorrow me going to thank now me for it and am i willing to make that compromise um to feel that way tomorrow over something short term today um yeah in a nutshell yeah, it feels like a very similar sort of journey that I've been on and kind of realising that particularly sort of when I've had things like cognitive behavioural therapy and something and, and, and stuff and behavioural activation and learning how much the way that we act and the way that we think affects our emotions and actually realizing the importance of like you say in the self-care project like the micro yes yes because so many people when i've talked to them about self-care have said you know well it's like you said about marketing it's just you know it's just people encouraging you to spend money or it's like big things like i don't know going on holiday or and actually that that isn't really i mean they're nice things but that's not really the self-care that works for me it is the really it's the small things. One of the things that I'm doing at the moment, I've been doing during lockdown, is reading a chapter of a book a day because I realised I hadn't read. I love reading, and I hadn't read a book, a fiction book, for pleasure in forever because I was I listened to audiobooks, but I was I was struggling to focus enough to actually or to concentrate enough or relax enough, I guess actually, to read a chapter of a book, and so I just yeah. didn't. And so I sort of said to myself, well, I'm just going to do one chapter a day. And of course, it, it inevitably has been more than one chapter a day as I get back into the habit of reading and, and the impact that that's had on my mental well-being. And particularly during COVID, where my home and workspaces are the same, my ability to switch off has been huge. And that just it really it's really worked for me. It's always really worked for me, actually. But I'd completely got out of the habit of doing it because I wasn't making space for it. I was going, oh, but you're busy and you can't concentrate and you need to do this. And, oh, but the computer's there. You could just, and yeah, so that just word. Yeah, like, are you just, yeah, just, I'm just gonna do this in a minute, just, just for a minute. Mm -hmm. And then it's never, is it? I truly believe that um, self-care needs to be the fabric of our day-to-day. -day. And um, one of the things that I always think about is self-care anchors. So, um, life is topsy-turvy we get pulled this way that way forwards backwards yeah. you know it's 
there's lots of noise, so much noise around us, inside of us sometimes. And it's, life is, is a lot, especially with social media now added on and layered in. Yeah. <laughs> I think that anchors ground, um, you know, ships in seas, keep them grounded no matter what's going on around them. So I always think of self-care anchors as being some things that we've got scattered throughout our throughout our day that are non-negotiable, like you're reading a chapter of a book, mine's going outside and like plant watch with my husband and child, we love it, we plant these plants and we want to get, we talk about them, we learn about them, we watch them, see what's happening, plant some more, um, just these things that are spread throughout your day that are going to anchor you and ground you and balance you when the rest of, and when everything else could be going wrong and being loud and being, you know, encroaching on your space. You have these things scattered throughout your day that are the micro opportunities to just be still, do something that you enjoy. Well, not, you don't have to be still. Self-care might to be yeah. dancing or whatever, but whatever it is to sprinkle it throughout your days um, so that every single day has something you enjoy in there, something that's going to lift you up, something that's going to be good for you, you know, so that you can then, it helps you build resilience to deal with the stuff that life throws at you because you know in the next hour that you might read that chapter of your book or I might pop outside and see how my gladioli are doing or, <laughs> you know, um, oh yeah, like I have it on my summer list, have a drink because I get yes. so into work, I forget. And then I look at the and I'm like, oh yeah, I need to have a drink. And I get up and have my drink. And it's just, yeah, I just scatter them in and schedule them in as though they're any other thing. Um, and it really helps me to feel like I'm keeping on top of myself and keeping mm. myself topped up in a world that's increasingly trying to deplete me. It feels, you know, it feels like you're up against it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do the same. I use the reminders app on my phone and I set, I have rem the daily reminder to read a chapter and kind of over time I've built in other, other things as well. And partly because as you say to kind of it's it's it is that reminder it's that kind of prompt but also i i know from the way that my brain works if i've got a notification or something on a list that needs ticking off it will motivate me to do it yes i'm a list lover so for me yeah. it helps me to have it scattered in my list because i love crossing something off so yeah. if that's what motivates me and helps me then i'm going to use it and we're all different um but yeah if you're a list lover it's the best thing to do is just put the self-care in your list <laughs> it because it, it tends to get done and if it's micro self-care as well rather than you, you saying find two hours today that i'm going to do it that's really really hard you especially if something happens in the day that then obliterates that two hours you've set aside because life happens and things happen if the, you've got like a few things scattered throughout your day that even if you miss one you've got something else you know and you know day to day you're being quite um consistent with that and it is definitely stuff that works for you then i think you feel it's 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 more beneficial than having sometimes just a big block of time because you're you're kind of having this space that space throughout the day to i don't know like the micro in the book i say the micro for me is always where it's at more than you know going on holiday yes love having that on the horizon um love it um but again you know there's lots of planning and things you have to do that aren't quite so fun like, like where are your passports or like insurance all the rest of it i think that you can get you can find those moments in your day of micro you know 15 10 minutes 10 15 minutes to do something that you just really thoroughly enjoy that's just for you that everyone's got that everyone's got that amount of time and i for me work it's one of the positives of working from home during this period is having a bit more flexibility to do that 
when I take you know when I take a break from work or I have lunch or you know it's or it's even in the afternoon it's much easier to take 15 minutes to go and you know when it's nice sit in the garden and read a chapter than it is when I'm at work like physically and so that's one of the things that's been really beneficial for me is in working from home is having a little that little bit more space in the day and without the peer pressure I guess too yeah to not to not need the desk you know that I'm for all of my all all of my preaching I I never leave my desk for lunch I eat that I eat lunch at my desk when I'm in the office pretty much every day unless I've arranged to go and have lunch with somebody even though I tell I tell myself every day I'm not going to do it but (laughs) it it doesn't happen but there is something for me about being at home and in my home environment and being able to go into my kitchen and kind of rummage around in the fridge and figure out what the hell I could eat um that you don't feel judged and you're not judging yourself you're not judging yourself so so perhaps that what's happened you've been able to kind of figure out the things that you value yeah and hopefully when you're whenever it might be that you're back <laughs> in the environment you you might be able to hold on to that and take your lunch break I mean just you know you're not you're not no one's paid for the lunch break the expectations that you take a lunch break when you start a contract that's one of the things you know I mean I think that's one of the minimum things that anyone could do is just take your breaks that you're allotted just do it and yeah. I think that once you start it does take someone sometimes to just freaking do it for other people to then be like she's taking a lunch break yeah I'm gonna take my lunch break and then before you know it people are taking their lunch breaks but um isn't it just so weird that we feel like we can't even have a lunch break sometimes yeah and and I it's like you say some of it is just pressure and it's not even external pressure no we hold ourselves to such dizzying standards that we're like no amount of working will meet them no, no amount of anything would ever meet them we just hold ourselves to these such high standards and we never we never kind of like um loosen our self-expectations when anything else changes we just keep them steadfast so you might be feeling really really poorly nope <laughs> not, not not i'm not you know you don't we don't renegotiate those standards we hold for ourselves we just still try and aim for them and it's um it's why we become so unwell yeah we, you know, we're not willing to kind of but we would for anyone else you know and being a mum has really taught me that so much that a she's always watching me always more than she's listening she's watching and that's helped me change so many habits um and b that i would never want her to be the person to feel like she could take her lunch break so we've kind of really since she was tiny normalized like self-care like as much as possible and it's a conversation we have every time so like most days of when she was home from school we would sit down in the morning how do you feel Peggy thumbs up thumbs down somewhere in the middle how do I feel thumbs up thumbs down some middle my husband how does he feel and then we would say what three things would help you keep your thumb up mm. get your thumb further up today what do you need from today and um we would then try and create craft our day around yes obligations there was still work to be done homeschooling to be done but we would always try and make sure the thing three things that each of us have said whether that's time out to go for a walk or peggy'd be like i just want all three of us to play lego i want to feel connected so we would do it but it was so 
brilliant to do that as a family because the, we would all feel different on different days you know we the might peggy might be a thumbs up but i might be a thumbs down so we do have to take into consideration my needs and teach her that she needs to take into consideration other people's needs and um, and it's been really powerful and she's become i mean she's six but she's quite empowered to say that she needs something and i really hope that i can keep that up for her for throughout her kind of you know life that she'll still be an empowered 16 year old 26 year old to take yeah. what she needs and like you said so much of that is about understanding what what works for you and making space for it yeah and and it really it really isn't it really isn't easy it's incredibly difficult and it, it is great so it is so in the sense of what asking yourself what do i need from the day today rather than what the day needs from me yes is quite easy and then through trial and error and experimenting you said you experimented and that's the best yeah. way just try different things like give different things a go i've started painting recently and i always thought i couldn't paint or draw and actually i can it was really such a surprise and i absolutely love it i lose myself in it and then my family want the things i've painted which is a lovely feeling and you know it's just it's, it's a really cool little hobby but it's only because i tried it after sort of like years of convincing myself that i couldn't and um, and that's been a lovely kind of discovery recently. And there's loads of little things like that I've done just because I've given things a go. I've gone back to my childish curiosity and wonder of like, oh, actually, I'm going to like, you know, play with Lego or I'm going to get a Lego set just for me because I loved it when I was a kid. And I think, though, it's the going gets the grain because nobody else necessarily around us is doing it, which is what's so difficult. So yeah. I think boundaries are quite easy in the sense that we kind of know ourselves or we can get to know ourselves you know it's, it's a process like you say but it's it's we kind of you know when someone says to you oh kelly do you mind doing this and your whole body is like no no i don't want to yes and then that like you regret it and you're trying to think of excuses or ways to get out of it or you hope something happens you don't have to do it your whole body was screaming and say no but you said yes i've done it so many times yeah. um we do know ourselves quite well it's just having the courage to hold the boundaries it's the continual asserting of our boundaries that's the hard 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 bit like it's exhausting it, it it's tiring it can it can feel like a never-ending battle and i think that's where you do need the self-care to recharge but then you have to hold the space and boundary around the time that you set aside for self-care yeah and that 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 thing about it being an ongoing process again it i think is really crucial that it's it's not a kind of you get to a point and you've you've figured it out and you set your boundaries and everything's fine it's it's a constant process of reinforcing them and renegotiating them and managing them and it and it is work in a lot of ways but it's work that will benefit you in the long run and it does get easier i yeah. think the first time that anyone kind of reads the book or learns about boundaries, it can be a bit overwhelming because you realise that everything in your life, there's a boundary there. Whether it's a boundary that you've just let slip and it just feels boundaryless, you realise there could be a boundary there. Like, with, And in the book, we go through like every chapter, like there's all the different boundaries and there's tons. And also our boundaries flex. So my boundaries that I might have, say, with my mum are probably a lot looser than perhaps boundaries I might have with somebody else. Like they're just different with different people. And that's... Yeah. That that can make your head spin a little bit um but i think that 
once you start doing the boundary work and just take it one step at a time, one no at a time or one yes at a time, it gets a lot easier. So, um, that you know, I know that I never say no. And then I'd, my days would just be full of all this stuff. And I'd be like, oh, my God, I've said yes to all this stuff. But complete no to myself. Um, you know, none of this brings me joy. I don't really want to be doing any of this. Um, once you start saying no and have it, it, it gets easier to say no. When you, when you start asserting your boundaries that first time, it's awful. You feel so awkward. So you feel like a right pain in the butt. <laughs> you feel like you're like putting everybody out and being complete, you know, just all of these thoughts and feelings that run through your head. But as you do it more and more, you get more confident in it and it feels easier. And also, as long as you're consistent with people, then they respect them. I think that's the thing as well. Be consistent with people. So don't assert your boundary. And then the next time that scenario comes up, completely let that yeah. not at it because then that person's confused. What is your boundary? Like what's acceptable to you and what's not acceptable? You said this one time, now this time is different. So it's about it being consistent makes it a lot easier. And I always think about well, how we treat ourselves, set the tone for how other people might treat us. So if yeah. we don't value our, ourselves, it's very hard to then demand respect um, and to be valued by other people. So it all starts with ourselves, which feels like a huge weight of responsibility, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. But all it all comes back to that and the way that you value yourself. And, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do a lot recently is going, well, you in this situation, you would tell your friend, you'd, yeah. you'd tell a close friend to do X, Y and Z. So if that's what you would tell someone, you know, that you're incredibly close to and you love, why would you not give yourself that kindness as well? Yeah advice yes take your own advice and that's a really good barometer i think so if we can take ourselves out of the equation and situation mm -hmm. just for a minute or because you know we come with a lot of baggage we all have baggage of hurts and things and regrets and yeah. things, whatever <laughs> we've all absolutely got you can't go through life without it you know we all do we all accumulate stuff um but if you take yourself out of a situation just for a minute to consider that exactly that what would you say to somebody else and then take your own advice mm that's the magic right there like just is because regard regardless of whether you value yourself feel like you're important deserving worthy whatever else if it if it's the advice that you'd give to someone else that you truly care for and love to try and take your own advice and it's actually quite hard to do but i love that way of doing things just like what would i say to my daughter yeah or what do i want her to learn from me she's watching me do i really want to and it's have also for me it's having the courage of my convictions if i say to her oh if you need time out you just absolutely go and take it go on up you go do you want me to bring you up a drink and then when i need time out she just needs me like keeping on like getting to the point where i'm tearful and tetchy then i'm not really you know i'm teaching her two conflicting things um yeah. and so it's it's having the it's ha making sure your actions speak louder than your words half the time yeah Although I could continue talking to you about this all day, quite happily, it's probably a, probably a good point to bring this to a close. Um, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. That was fascinating. Thank you so much um, to Jane for taking the time out to talk to me. I've left this as a, a full episode. I've not really edited it down because... Actually, I felt like everything in here was important. I wanted to emphasise the importance of the messages that um, that Jane is communicating, but also 
the value that well-being has and self-care has in all of our lives but particularly in academia where we know mental health problems are rife i hope that listening to this episode has um been a source of support for you and a source of validation and that if you are struggling um i'm going to put all of the links to all of the books and resources that jane talks about in the episode in the show notes but also some links to university of exeter mental health support and mental health support more widely um and if you are struggling please please do reach out and that's it for this episode don't forget to like rate and subscribe and join me next time where i'll be talking to somebody else about researchers development and everything in between Thank you.